The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with um, a very fascinating story for you from my guest, Lynn Garson. She has just published a memoir that is... (laughs) that is causing the South to go up in flames, (laughs) kind of like Tara, or at least the South in terms of her own family. Her book is called Southern Vapors, and uh, Lynn grew up as an heiress in waiting, like Scarlett O'Hara. And Lynn, you have to know, Scarlett O'Hara is my alter ego. (laughs) I identify with her. And... Lynn soon found that the privileged world had a downside, and that was having to act as though everything was as perfect as it looked on the outside. And in Lynn's life, as you will soon hear, things were far from perfect. And yet, uh, having to hide all of this uh, added to the family dysfunction and added to what she calls a case of the vapors, which, of course, you'll have to explain more, um, that landed her into um, all kinds of places that you wouldn't expect an heiress in waiting to land. That's all I'll give away for now, Lynn. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, you know, you're making me laugh. You definitely, being a fan of Gone with the Wind, will understand a case of the vapors. I'm trying. Who was her friend? It's it's. Um, oh yes, Scarlett um, and the other character. Yes. Who's the sort of M- Melissa, the, Melinda. Something like that. Yeah, Something is that, like that. It? Yeah, and she it, she's the the one with the case of the vapor. Scarlet's the strong one, and she's the one with her hand draped over her forehead. And oh, Scarlet, oh. I just don't know if I can stand it anymore. Uh, that's a case of the vapors. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, Scarlet did that too. Some. I mean, she was very strong, of course, deep down, but. She had some of that, you know. Well, then then maybe I'm like Scarlett. I've had both sides. I've got both. (laughs) Yes, um, that is a fascinating combination. I think that's why I like Scarlett also, you know. The drama plus really deep down, you you know, what's that? There's that uh, you don't know what a woman's made of. A woman is like a teabag. You don't know what she's made of until she's in hot water. Yes, well, exactly, and I talk about that in the book as, as having an alter ego. One is this really strong character that I present to the world that seems very competent. I'm an attorney. I'm good at practicing law. People rely on me, clients, the other attorneys in my office, and there's this relentlessly competent image that I project, and then there's this other side that has the case of the vapors that 
that goes running and and say, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this. And there have been times when that's been fairly unmanageable in my life. And certainly the side of me that has has sort of run and said, I can't take responsibility for this, I can't do it, I can't do it, has landed. That's the side that has uh, headed me in the direction of inpatient hospitalizations and, and 30 years in therapy and, and that kind of thing. Well, let's so let's start from... Um... You know, I put my guests on the couch, Dr. Carol's couch and all. Um, I'll lean back in my chair. Okay. Um, why don't we start from the beginning? And it's so interesting because I looked at your um, website where we'll give all that information at the end where people can get the book and all of that. Great, um, great. But I looked at some of the photos, particularly the photos of you from, I think it's 1 to 31, right? Right. Um, and... Uh, Something uh, before you, you know, tell us about your dysfunctional childhood. Um, there was something I, from from the photos. I don't know if I'm right, but tell me if whatever it was that started, whatever the trauma was, the first trauma or first traumas, um, started before you were about eleven and twelve. Well, you're obviously very good at what you do, and I'm not saying that just to flatter you, because I think that, and I look at the photos, and I, that's the reaction that I have to them, but I'm not sure everybody really picks up on that, and very young, very, very young it started, and I think you've alluded to this when when you were introducing me, the idea that image was everything, mm-hmm. uh, or very, very important in my family. Well, part of the image, which uh, almost anyone and listening can relate to was the need to be thin. It was important. You know, our culture is all about that, really. And although there's been so much written and so much conversation about it, it's hard to get away from the the images that are everywhere telling you, oh, no, 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 you're not okay unless you're thin. So that was brought to bear on me when I was very young, really, maybe four. I remember being aware of it. And certainly by the time I was seven, I describe an incident in the book where I hid. Do you remember the little... You're too young, but somebody out there will. The little aristocrat ice cream cups, and they had the little wooden spoons taped to the lid. And you got them in grade school, and second grade I was in, in the lunch line. And I took two of those and hid them in, in, you know, my big underwear. You could hide anything, and you had big petticoats in those days. And I went back to my classroom, and I, it was Christmas time. And I got up on a little chair, and I was hanging ornaments on a tree. And all of a sudden, I heard people, the kids in the class, going, what's that? Look at her. And, and they were sort of laughing. And I looked down. I had forgotten about those ice cream cups, and they had melted. It was vanilla ice cream, which is unusual because I really only like chocolate. But they had melted and were running. It was running down my legs. Well, I was mortified. Mortified. Yeah. So that that was that was pretty young. At all, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yes. You in the photos, you start out you really sweet sweet-looking baby and so on. And as you get towards 11 and 12, um, there's something in your eyes and something in your face. You're not, because you start out cherubic, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's Mm -hmm. something um, that that gradually fades and and particularly noticeable by 11 or 12. So So continue with your story. 
Yeah, well, so I became very unsure of myself. I was not, uh, I didn't have the opinion that I was, that I looked right. And this part may or may not be true. This is a memory I have, and I've never checked it out. But I do recall in third grade that the teacher announced to the class that I was not supposed to eat certain things hmm. and, and that everybody should be aware of that. And I, I wasn't diabetic or, or, you know, I didn't have any kind of food issue that needed to be managed. It was simply this notion that come hell or high water, whatever was going on, you better look good, and, which is also very Southern. Uh, it wasn't unique to my household. It's a, it's a Southern thing, I think, uh, but it was played out with a lot of impact on me in my household. And, yes, we probably should take a step back and say, now, you grew up in Georgia. Yes, in Atlanta. In Atlanta. And your your family's wealth primarily came from your grandfather having founded Loving Bra. Oh, a lovable. Lovable. Bra. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and you were, <laughs> you were one of the aristocratic families of the town. Well, of the Jewish community, because uh. there was always a difference. You know, you've, I wasn't the, the top-notch uh, debutante, but in the Jewish community, and also just by virtue of the kind of house we lived in and the, the sort of estate that it was uh, in the community at large as well. But like, yes, Like Tara. Yes. Oh, yes. And that I do. I don't know that it does it justice, but I have a pretty good picture of it on the website with the magnolia trees lining the driveway. It was 23 and a half acres within the Atlanta city limits. Wow. Yeah, it was a tremendous amount of property backing up onto the Chattahoochee River. A gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous land. Um, and it, it was stunning. Okay. So take us Continue to take us behind these stunning walls. Well, behind these stunning walls, I, if you've read The Help, and, and most people I know have, it was exactly to the letter that lifestyle. I was raised both by my mother and by, and there's not really a proper name for this. It's not a nursemaid. It's certainly not a nanny, not a housekeeper. For me, she was my mother. She was literally my, my other mother. And uh, she and her husband and her daughter, and then she later adopted a son, lived in the house with us for most of my growing up. They were only with us till I was 13, but in, in most of that period, they lived in the house. And her husband uh, doubled as the butler and the chauffeur and, and did certain things around the house. And when I say butler, I mean butler. We sat down to dinner every night at 7 o'clock, and he came in in a white jacket with a silver tray and silver serving pieces. And he leaned, he had worked for the Navy. My mother will always say he was so well trained because he worked in the, whatever you call that, like the mess. And, and they served the captain and, and the whoever, the officers. Uh-huh. So he was very well trained, according to her. Mm-hmm. And so he would incline his body and, and very graciously accept extend the tray to you, and, and you would very politely take the silver spoon and the silver fork and, and put the, your meat or whatever it was on your plate and, and put it back, and you know, he knew to remove from the left. It, it was all, it was, it was pretty unusual. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Um, in fact, on Thursday nights, it was everything was it was planned out. And Thursday nights was always a night for my parents to go out, and it was also the night off for this couple. So we had another lady who would come in who worked for the factory also and then worked for us some of the time. And we had the same dinner every Thursday night. It was hamburgers, french fries, I think green beans, and salad. Hmm. And I ate every single morsel of food with my fingers. <laughs> and I mean, not just as a baby or a, a young person, but I think, you know, into 11, 12 years old that you're talking about because I could. Right, a little rebellion. A little, very, very little rebellion, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So so th- then what? What was sort of the first really traumatic memory? I think the, well, the early traumatic memories were, you know, I've told you about this insistence on looking good and being thin uh-huh. and, and equating being thin with looking good. So my mother would escort me pretty, uh, you know, not so kindly to her scale when she had huh. the idea that I had gained weight. And she would get angry, and she would say to me, have you gained weight? And I would, of course, no, 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 no. (laughs) I don't know what I thought I was doing because I was headed right for the scale. And, of course, I had gained weight, but I was afraid. So, oh, no, 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 no. And, of course, I would have gained weight. And she would let loose a tirade, and it would just reduce me to ashes. I I was just so, it hurt. You know, I, I was scared of that kind of anger. And it was it was very, very painful. So that started very young and I remember those incidents vividly. The the next thing that I think you'll definitely relate to in, in your profession was this couple and their family that I've described as my family left when I was 13, and it was one of these one day they were there, and the next minute that I came home from, from whatever class I was in, they were gone. And there was were they no... fired, or, were they, or did they quit? No, they were fired, um, but it was, I was never given an explanation. Huh. Wow, yeah. abandonment. Yeah. Okay, we need, <laughs> we need to talk about abandonment. We need to take a break now, but we will be coming back. Um, I'm talking with my guest, Lynn Garson. She is the author of Southern Vapors, a new memoir. And we're going from silver spoon to straitjacket mm. to success. So we're at the silver spoon start. We'll, <laughs> part. we'll get to the straitjacket soon. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. 
Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about Silver Spoon to Straightjacket to Success with my guest, Lynn Garson, the author of Southern Vapors. And uh, before the break, Lynn was talking about how her her other mother, in a sense, her, um, her well, nanny slash, so, you know, I guess nanny is sort of the closest to it, but um, what, and her husband and family were one day there and one day gone when, when Lynn was 13. And you know, ne- your parents never told you what happened. What, what's your, well, you must have had at 13 all the way to now, you must have fantasies about what happened. Well, I've since talked to everybody concerned, but many, many years later, no, for a long time, I just shut it out. I didn't think about it. I asked. I did ask the question at the time, and I just was, it was as if I wasn't entitled to ask, and I I realized I wasn't going to ask anymore because I wasn't going to hear anything. And, um, in fact, it wasn't until I was a junior in college, so that's about eight years later, I think, that I, I had seen them in the interim, but, but still nobody ever answered the questions, and it was I, I pretty much cut them out of my thinking. And so I was junior year abroad, and I was living in Paris, and I remember one night sitting up in bed and starting to cry mm. and, and missing her. Mm. And, you know, I think the distance sort of jogged something in me, and over the course of years, I've talked to her, and, and she's explained to me that there were issues going on in her life, and I had to come to terms with the very difficult idea that maybe I wasn't the center of her universe mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. point. You but know? do you think? Do you think maybe? But you said she was fired. They were fired. Do you think maybe there was something that she's still protecting your parents? That there was something. You know, more scandalous? No, she, no, no, she, I don't. I really don't. She's pretty clear about what was going on, and she has no problem with the fact that they were fired. Her husband, who is now no longer living, she is living, um, was had these businesses on the side, and my mother needed help, and he wouldn't show up. Mm. So it, it was really, there's no issue about anything being kept a secret, she, but I, I don't know why that couldn't be told to me at the time. I mm-hmm. think there were issues of alcoholism and things like that uh-huh. also that they felt weren't appropriate to talk to a child about. Uh-huh. But, yeah. So when so so you developed a case of, of eating disorder. Yes. You, you developed they they eating. finally admitted it to the DSM. Hallelujah. Binge eating disorder is now officially instead of in the appendix, I understand uh-huh. it's it's an official disorder. 
as my my good friend said, you could have told them that in 1971. <laughs> <laughs> and what were there any other addictions that you had? Um, cigarettes for a while, but uh, no, and then that's long gone. I quit 30 years ago. I, mean, so I have a very addictive personality, <laughs> and for someone who has that, I I don't have too many addictions. So what was, I mean, so you, you write that you were in um, a psychiatric, three different times you were in psychiatric hospitals. Yes. And driven to the brink of suicide. So when did all of this major... Um, these major psychological problems start? Well, I, I had issues really beginning in high school, but I struggled along and I cycled up and down for decades, decades. And I, I looked for help and I, I tried to get help. There were times when I was very low and mostly suffering from depression through those years. And remember, I'm talking about 30 years, so it, it's hard for me to remember details of all 30 years. But this was a part of my life that I worked so hard to try to overcome, but I never went into a hospital. I didn't even know they had psychiatric hospitals or treatment centers until really 2000, and that was an eating disorders clinic. So I thought that, uh, well, that's a particular thing. It wasn't until I went in the hospital in 2008 that I understood that there was some place like that that I could go for help. Don't ask me why. I can't <laughs> explain that to you. I have, well, except I do have one explanation for it. On the very rare occasions when I asked my family of origin for help, they either reacted and said, no, we don't air our dirty laundry in public. And I mean, literally, that's a quote. Um, or they looked at me as very puzzled and said, I don't know what you're talking about. So... I had the message that the people that I really would look to normally to help me simply weren't going to help me. So it was up to me, and I, I don't know why I didn't see hospitalization. Maybe I thought there was a stigma to it. Certainly at the time when I went in, I could have cared less. If they told me that I needed to go to the moon, I would have gone to the moon. Uh-huh, because what was what was happening then? Why were you so desperate at that point. Well, I had had a difficult divorce, and not that any divorce is easy, but I was living in Virginia at the time, which we had moved from Atlanta where my family lived, including a fair amount of extended family, to where his family and extended family lived in Virginia in the Norfolk area. And so I proceeded, of course, to get divorced. And it was that everybody we had been friendly with had been his friends. So 99% of them went with him, as people tend to do in divorces. Unfortunately, people often do choose one side mm-hmm. or the other. And I had no, so I had no family, no friends, and for a while, no job. And struggling to support myself and to maintain relationships with my children who were having a lot of trouble dealing with my neediness because they were all I had. And I was really looking to them to take care of me, which I had some very good friends point out was not a proper thing to do, <laughs> but I did it anyway, and, and that drove them away at a certain level. So I, I just went into a nosedive. Well, before, before the divorce, did you have, like, um, 
you know, one of these sumptuous, uh, privileged uh, southern weddings? Oh, yes. How did you guess? <laughs> oh, I, really? I was thinking about it today. That's so funny. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it really... If you could find anyone who was there, they would tell you that they probably consider it one of the top events they ever went to in their lives. Because people have told me that. I personally couldn't wait to get out of there. But, uh, you know, it, it was just, it was uncomfortable and it wasn't really me. But um, it was a show. It was a great show. And it was beautiful and the food was uh, never ending and the wine and the champagne and the dancing. It was lovely. But, um, you know, at this point I sort of wish I'd taken the money. <laughs> I don't know that it was a choice. Well, when when you first met him, was he did did you think he was a prince charming or did your parents was this someone that your parents wanted you to marry? How oh no, this... I met my ex-husband in law school and we were I mean, we were best friends for 8 years until we started to be romantic and uh he was my best friend for years after that. So, no, this, he was my choice. It, I laugh about it. I mean, we're still very good friends, and I laugh about it. I said at a certain point that I had married my mother, mm. um, and, and he adored and adores my mother. Um, they're, they're a little bit two peas in a pod. Hmm. So, why, so okay, <laughs> why, what happened that you got divorced? Uh, well, I'll say that one of the things was when I started to, to mention the idea that I couldn't look to my family for help. So when he became my family, you know, after you get married, that you that's your family. Right. Uh, he was not a person who liked to look at, at a lot of issues that were going on inside, a lot of psychological or emotional issues. And he really didn't want to look at my issues and did not want to participate in my struggles or my seeking treatment or, or educate himself about what was going on. And I think it made a great divide between us because I'm sure he resented having, you know, being saddled with this person that, that was just going from struggle to struggle. And I resented him not helping. Mm-hmm. And at yeah. that point, the struggles were still with an eating disorder and with depression? Yes. So Yeah, so it didn't change. The, the whole anxiety piece came out of the blue when, and when I tell you that I've got two different sides to my personality, you know, the... Only the side that will sort of self-sabotage me could have ever come up with this plan. So I get separated in January of 20, 2005, and by December of 2007, I'm so miserable and I'm spiraling down and I want my family back. So I decide that I'm going to reconcile, that I want to reconcile with my ex-husband, and, and he's on board with that. And part of me is saying loud and clear, stop. No, this is not, don't do this. This is not a good idea. You got divorced for a reason. And the other part is quite clearly saying to that side, shut up. We're doing this. I don't care what happens. I don't care how bad you feel. This is what we're doing. And I was aware of those two different voices going back and forth in my head. And for a long time, I'd say six or seven months, I stuck with the forget it. I'm doing this no matter what it does to me. And it literally took me apart. Hmm. 
Was so was that one of the times that you were brought to the brink of suicide? Yes. That's why I put myself in the hospital the the first uh, well the first time was the eating disorder thing and and that was really I, I think of that as not counting because it was all about food and gaining weight and and being miserable about that I didn't understand so many of my larger issues and was focused much more on the manifestation of my issues in gaining weight mm-hmm. so it was the 2008 hospitalization where it really had nothing to do with food. In fact, as a byproduct of all the the strain and the turmoil, I stopped eating for Mm -hmm. once, which was not usually the way I addressed my problems. And I just kept losing weight and losing weight and losing weight. And I was pretty thin by the time I went into the hospital. Hmm. Yes, that can, uh, depression can manifest itself uh, by eating too much or eating too little. Mm-hmm. So And then, of course, it gets more complicated when there's an eating disorder. Yeah. Well, all right. We do need to take another break. My guest is Lynn Garson. Her book is Southern Vapors. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Do you find yourself tearing pictures of rooms out of magazines? Do you watch certain movies and TV programs because of the homes they show? Are Sundays reserved for open houses? Then you are a home dreamer. And someday, you will build or renovate your dream home. Steve Clip has spent three decades learning how to win at the dream home game. His show, Winning the Dream Home Race, can be heard every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Let Steve Clip help save you money and make you a winner. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, where we're talking about silver spoon to straitjacket to success with Lynn Garson, the author of the new memoir, Southern Vapors. Now, be, during the break, I was, <laughs> I was asking Lynn in my usual um, blunt fashion. <laughs> I'm pretty blunt, too, so that works for me. Um, you know, I was telling her that it didn't, so far what she's described, didn't really seem um, devastating enough or traumatic enough 
um, to explain why she was in straitjackets in three ho- mental hospitals um, and and on the brink of suicide. I mean, we did talk about the marriage and so on, but but these things always start um, the seeds for for serious mental problems always start in in childhood. So I was asking. So Lynn doesn't want to hurt her. <laughs> she she's been sort of soft peddling this to a degree, which was obvious to me, because um, of not wanting to hurt her mother. Now, Lynn, I want you to. You do have something on your website that says um, with with the reviews of the book. And your uh-huh. mother said something like, I don't give a damn. <laughs> I know, but that's not entirely true. Um, and But I, I will say you're right, that I have been soft-pedaling it. And in listening to you talk, you know, this is a dilemma for me because people who are going to try to relate to what I'm talking about, I think will be frustrated if they say, well, it's just some spoiled little rich girl. I mean, so what that she got dressed up in pretty dresses and told that she had to be thin? You know, it's a big deal. That mm-hmm. What made her go into the hospital? And the fact of the matter is it was more than that. And I'm trying so hard to, to uh, reach a balance with this because, I, as I said to you in the break, I don't want to bash my mother. Um, and, and I really, we have a wonderful relationship now. We, we're close and I don't want to hurt her. And she has seen articles where I've been very blunt and, and people have sort of taken it a step further and talked about her being abusive. Um, and I, I don't like that. But in, to, to be truthful, uh, with all that caveat that I was a sensitive child, um, a very sensitive person, very open person from, from day one. And you take that kind of child and put her in an environment where you've got somebody who has over-the-top anger, which my mother did, uh, not a good combination, mm-hmm. unfortunate, but not a good combination. Mm-hmm. And did she get particularly angry because of, like, she felt that you were humiliating the family by not looking perfect all the time? I think that was part of it, but I think even she would admit at this point that she is all about control. Mm-hmm. And I think for her, and, and you know more the psychology of it, but a daughter particularly is a reflection of a mother. It's female-female. And she couldn't control me. She couldn't make me be exactly like she wanted me to be, and I think that was frustrating to her. I'm a very different person by nature from the person whom she is, and that was frustrating to somebody who wanted control. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting. You're talking about, um, well, well, during the break, you were. I was asking about your father, too, because obviously that's a very important, especially for little girls, um, Relationship, and um, you you mentioned that he that he didn't stand up for you to her, and that right. he didn't wear the pants in the family. That she wore the pants, which is actually um, one of the books that I've written is called Bad Boys: Why We Love Them, How to Live with Them, and When to Leave Them. And I talk about twelve different types of bad boys, and one of the types um, is the Mister Power Mad, which is a very controlling kind of guy. And women who are attracted to Mister Power Mads are women who grew up in homes where um, the father didn't wear the pants. And um, the little girl feels, uh, consciously or unconsciously, feels sort of sorry for her father or embarrassed by by her father, for her father, um, because he isn't standing up and being more of a man of the house. 
And, um, and so that would tend to explain from what you, you didn't say that much, but it seems to go along with the choice that you made of husband. Mm-hmm. That he was yeah. controlling. Um, yeah, although we or came looked, up in a uh, different era. We met in law school. So there may have been some of that, but I think he had really gotten the message about equality. Um, so it wasn't quite what you're saying. And I, I want to go back to one thing that you said. You said a, a little girl who was raised like that would feel sorry for her father. I was angry with my father. Well, that too. You know, sort of like wishing, angry that he didn't stand up for you. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, like, where are you? You're the big guy. You know, I'm the little kid. You're, you're the adult here. Right, right. Um, but it's also sort of embarrassing. It's, if not feeling sorry for, then just feeling like, uh, it's kind of yucky, you know, that he, that he isn't being more, more of a man. Well, you know, it was the kind of dynamic, though, where I watched my mother. She was sort of the power behind the throne. Mm-hmm. So she spent a great deal of time making him feel like he was the, the one mm-hmm. in charge. Mm-hmm. So were you literally in straitjackets? No, no. I don't know that they do that so much anymore. I mean, I guess if you're you're flailing around. No, there is still restraint and seclusion. Seclusion, RNS, restraint and seclusion. People are still put, I don't know that you'd call them straitjackets, but, um, you know, into some kind of, uh, I mean, it's essentially a straitjacket into some kind of... um, um, a restraint, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. I can imagine that because if somebody's flailing around, you don't right. want them to hurt themselves exactly. or somebody else. Right. Yeah, exactly. no, no. That's a real shorthand term for uh, being in a mental institution. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, so, are, so you you said that you were in uh, therapy for for thirty years and counting. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> well, in therapy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. did you find was it psychoanalytically oriented? No, no. Um, I couldn't give you the, maybe the very first one that I went to may have been, but that didn't last that long. I would say it was um, cognitive behavioral therapy for the most part. Um, And I think the person I see now combines that with an analytic approach. Uh Because it's really, I'm psychoanalytic and it's really the, it's really the only way to get at the root of the problems. But um, tell us about how, uh, I understand that when the book came out, which was when exactly? When was uh, It was uh, mid-2012. Okay. So that there was quite a fallout with your family. Tell me some of the things that happened. Uh, well, the fallout was actually before that. I had cousins who had seen it and circulated it uh, and, and talked to each other when it, it was a blog initially. I was in the hospital um, in 2010 and started, well, I just wanted to connect with other people who were having these kinds of issues. So I wrote this blog, and no one, no one saw this blog. <laughs> I, you know, I, I really am not a social media expert, and nobody looked at the thing. But I did show it to some family members, and then they circulated it among each other. And I got some pretty severe fallout from that. Like, like what? 
oh, uh, there were all kinds of things like I was dragging the family name in the mud and how could I say these things and how could I talk about this in public and how could, what else? Um, uh, you know, the name Garson had stood for something in this community at a certain point and how could I, <laughs> so like, uh, you know, they were upset and uh, half of them were sympathetic and, and sorry you went through these things and uh, hope you're doing better and And I'd say about half of them were on the other side. So even though that happened, you went ahead and published the book. I did. I did. And and believe me, I had a lot of heartburn about it and a lot of concerns. And I I called each family member, including cousins, and told them that I was publishing the book and wanted them, I think I maybe sent it back around for people to read if they wanted to. And the interesting thing was... I was so much, quote, better by then, I was so much more stable by then, that not a single person had a problem in in the extended family. Uh, all the people who had been uh, up in arms, it was like they'd all forgotten everything they ever said, and they were, I'm proud of you, I'm happy for you. It was interesting. Huh, I think well, a lot what? of it had to do with me. Well, but why would they be doing about face? Well, I've left better? out one piece. I was a little harsher in the blog than I ended up being in the book. Uh huh. Yeah. So I think they, they, they had that idea, <laughs> and I think they also, to a person, were concerned about my mother. Mm-hmm. She's the last one. Well, no, she's not the last one, but she's the strongest one left from the previous generation. Mm-hmm. And I think is very much the matriarch of the family, and I think everybody was concerned for her not to be hurt. Hmm. Well, that's that's. Uh, I mean, do you think they might have been relieved? Those who had read the blog, you know, relieved that you weren't putting that it wasn't quite as harsh in the book. I think so. I think so. And I think they'd had time to get used to it. And I guess they saw that I was serious and I was going to do this anyway. Mm-hmm. And maybe they'd all talk to each other and calmed each other down. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. And wh- so, okay. So what? why did you go ahead? I mean, especially now that you're so, you know, obviously really concerned about everyone's feelings. What made you, um, why did you, what were you, what was driving you to publish it? Well, I would say two things. One is was the need to be seen. Um, that was part of my issues growing up. When, and I, you've probably intuited that when I talk about it was image, image, image. Well, where that left no room for the real Lynn to to make an appearance. And that was a real problem for me because I had needs and wants and desires and interests that I wanted to express. Um, And so I think publishing the book in one way was a complete, I am done with this. I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is who I am. Mm. I am putting that out there for everybody to see. That was number one. Number two is... I really did come to understand that the journey that I had taken and coming out the other side was extremely important to share with people who still are are struggling. And the you know when you're in that struggle, you don't or, or I will speak for myself. I didn't believe that I was ever going to come out of it. 
it feels very much like this moment's going to last forever. And I really wanted to share with people that for me, it didn't, it mm-hmm. didn't last forever. It was really hard while it was going on, but it didn't last forever. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. To uh, to help help people let them by letting them know that they can come out the other side too. Right. Well, we need to come out the other side of this break. <laughs> We're taking uh, another break. Again, my guest is Lynn Garson. Her book is called Southern Vapors. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, Tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with Lynn Garson. She likes to call herself the Rocky Balboa of the mental health world. And like Rocky, she's staged a remarkable comeback as a very successful professional. And um, I would like you to tell us now a little bit more about uh, going into the depths of the psychiatric hospital and, and from there to being a very successful attorney at this point. Well, the hospital that I went into in 2008 was a wonderful facility called the Retreat at Shepherd Pratt in Baltimore. Mm. And I was there for 10 weeks, and it took all 10 of those weeks to even remotely put me back together. And when I left the hospital, the my primary uh, psychiatrist told me that your chance for recovery is fair to good with ongoing intensive treatment. That, that was the prognosis stated in my chart. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't happy with that at all. I thought, 10 weeks, I should be better. Um, you guys have had your shot at me. You're the pros. 
And so I went about my business. I did not do what he suggested, which was three to four days of therapy a week. And I sort of eventually found somebody one day a week. Then I moved to Atlanta. It took me a while. Found somebody again one day a week. And by the end of 2009... I was so far down again that I put myself in a hospital locally in 2010 and made my way back with, you know, I was inpatient for a week and outpatient for months. And I finally woke up and decided that what the doctor had said in Baltimore, he was serious, that I was not going to get better and stay better without some kind of ongoing course of treatment. Mm -hmm. So I put that in place and I go to group therapy one night, individual two days a week. I have a spiritual practice on Sundays and I do hot yoga once or twice a week. Hmm. And I do that every single week unless I'm out of town. Hmm. And, um, And during the times that you were in it, well, you know, that is a very good place, Shepherd Pratt. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the few <laughs> intense places left. Nowadays, people get go into psychiatric hospitals and it's like a revolving door. They're thrown out after, you know, even w- within days. If, Do if you know, week. that's exactly what my doctor in Virginia told me. And, in fact, he said uh, there are three places left in the country where you could go and you can't afford them. He had no idea, you know, what my family background was. And I got my brother on the phone, and I, I almost couldn't sit up at that point. I, I was just, uh, I was at the bottom of the barrel. And as I sort of leaned over on his couch, and I said, would you please talk to my brother? And my brother got on the phone with him, and he said the same thing to my brother. And he said, but it's, you can't afford it. And my brother said, and I will never forget this, expense is no object. Mm-hmm. And thank God they had enough money to be able to do this because it's private pay. It does not take insurance. Right. And that is the reason that I am still walking around. Mm-hmm. So you have taken it on yourself to be um, to be a, an advocate for uh, against the stigma of mental illness. I have. I'm very serious about two or three things having to do with mental health. One is the idea that we're not going to get anywhere until we address the stigma surrounding it. And I think it's it's become very clear to me that there is a stigma because if you look at what's the conversation about mental health after Newtown, there was a lot of talk initially, oh, we've got to address the mental health component of this. We can't just address gun violence or video violence or other issues. And I have faithfully and with great hope every single day Googled mental health news or mental health And I have come to the point of being very disappointed that there's not much of a conversation going on. And I've started to think about, well, why? And I think that one of the answers to that is that there's still a stigma about it. Yes, I definitely think that's part of it. I mean, I think um, uh, some of the people who are involved, whether it's the Batman shooter or the uh, um, Adam Lanza for Sandy Hook or, you know, people who were involved in some of the recent um, catastrophes, um, stigma was a part in their not getting help. Um, I mean, it, 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 I, it is true. I've, of course, been following that, too, that everybody's focusing on gun control, 
um, as opposed to improving the mental health system and opposed, as opposed to uh, doing more to ban or doing anything to ban um, uh, violent video games, which is one of my uh, pet um, activist activity uh, against media violence, or my number one uh, activist activity, actually. Um, and yeah, so and they, don't you find that the lack of conversation is stunning? Yes, yes. It's just because those two things are more difficult to to deal with than saying we should just not have guns anymore. <laughs> right, right. No, it, I'm I'm very troubled by it, very concerned by it, and I also think I'm a fairly natural candidate to talk about stigma because I feel none. You know, I, I don't have any problem getting. I mean, I'll walk up to somebody and say, "How, hi, how are you? I'm Lynn Garson. I've been in three mental institutions. I don't care." Well, let me ask you something. You know, being a lawyer, um, I mean, obviously, all the people in your firm and and presumably lawyers who you have to go up against in court have either read your book or heard about it or know your story somehow. Has that impacted you in any way in your career? No, and I'll tell you why. Because I approached it in a very logical way. I waited until right before I was going to publish the book. I'd been at my current firm for a year, had a a good record under my belt, and I took that book and I went to the office of every single person in my department and the gentleman who founded the law or co-founded the law firm, and I said, do you see this book? Do you see the name on this book? It's the same name that's on every email of mine that goes out to our clients. I want you to know what this book is about, and you, I don't want you to be blindsided, and I want you to talk to me if you've got any issue with it. Hmm. And not only did they not have an issue, but better than half of them showed up at my first book reading. Huh. Wow. Including the head of my department. Well, that's really good. And it's never come up in the courtroom? Well, I'm not a trial lawyer. I uh-huh. do corporate law, but no, it's never come up. And, and if it did, I have a good relationship with the people that I uh, practice with and, and with clients, and we'd have a conversation about it. Uh-huh. So when I tell you I don't feel any stigma, I really mean that. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's how you're able to be a very good uh, role model for this. I mean, it is very sad that in um, 2013 there's still such a stigma, particularly uh, when the world, when people need help more than ever because of the world going crazy. Right. Well, I agree. <laughs> well, that's the that's uh, the music. That's our signal. We do need to to close. Uh, well, oh, well, I could talk it? to you for another hour. <laughs> so enjoyed this. Well, well, I'm so glad. And let's just give out your um, website. It's Southern Vapors. I've made it very easy. It's southernvapors.com. Facebook is Southern Vapors. Twitter is Southern Vapors. And the book's available on Amazon as Southern Vapors or uh, Kindle or Barnes & Noble Nook. And that's Southern, V-A-P-O-R-S, just in case, southernvapors.com. you got to go there and look at all the photos and everything else that she has on there. And obviously, you've been giving us some of the highlights, but... Um, But for more, for the rest of the story, you need to read her book, Southern Vapors. So, Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.